Hello and welcome to Glasgow City Heritage Trust podcast, If Glasgow's Walls Could Talk, a new series about the relationships, stories and shared memories that exist between Glasgow's historic buildings and people. Hello, I'm Neil Murphy and welcome to If Glasgow Walls Could Talk, a podcast by Glasgow City Heritage Trust about the stories and relationships between historic buildings and people in Glasgow. In this episode, we'll be talking about accessibility and inclusivity in relationship to Glasgow's historic built environment and health sector. Barriers are at the root of disabled people's exclusion and inequality and are an obstacle to their enjoyment and appreciation of heritage, culture and art. So we're lucky to live in a city famous for its stunning architectural legacy of historic buildings and majestic cityscape created in a time of great wealth, mainly during the 18th, 19th and early 20th centuries, when Glasgow in its golden age regarded itself as the second city of the empire. Unfortunately, a lot of these heritage spaces are inaccessible to many people living, working and visiting Glasgow. According to the Scottish Census of 2011, Glasgow is the highest level of disabled residents compared to other Scottish cities. Looking at the most recent data from Visit Scotland's 2021 survey, in Scotland, one in five people is disabled, though only 8% of Scottish people with disabilities are wheelchair users, and 70% have disabilities which are invisible. Access needs are as unique and individual as the person who is requiring them, and in the majority of cases, when a space defines itself as fully accessible, it means next to nothing to a person with disabilities. Before going to a new place, 98% of disabled users check accessibility in advance and admit they are most likely to visit a venue if sufficient accessibility information is available. A shocking 75% of people with disabilities feel anxious before visiting a new place, particularly about how to access facilities and hygiene processes and procedures. So we're also conscious that as we age, this is a growing section of the population, and you have to look at the spending power of disabled households, which in 2017 was valued at £249 billion per year. And that is what is known as the purple pound. So what can we do to create spaces that are accessible and inclusive of people with disabilities? And what makes a space truly fully accessible? And what are the steps to achieve this status? As Glasgow City Heritage Trust is very conscious of this issue, which impacts on how so many Glaswegians can access our heritage, today we have a great guest to discuss this topic and many more, accessibility consultant Emily Rose Yates. To give an idea of Emily's background, Emily is a wheelchair user living in Glasgow with eight years experience as an accessibility consultant. Emily first started to volunteer at the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. And there's a great quote about Emily from Lord Coe, Sebastian Coe, who was the chairman of the London Organising Committee for the Olympic Games, who said about Emily that, in my closing speech at the Paralympic Games in London, I talked about Emily. The games, she said, had lifted the cloud of limitation for people with disability. So on the back of her experience in London, Emily was invited to Rio de Janeiro, by the British consulate to speak on the importance of access and inclusion out of the 2016 Olympic Games. And whilst there, she was offered a role as accessibility consultant for Metro Rio, the rapid transit system serving Rio de Janeiro ahead of the 2016 Olympic and Paralympic Games. So Metro Rio, which first opened in 1979, and you can compare that to Glasgow's um, subway, which opened in 1896, so it's the third oldest in the world. Metro Rio currently has a 58 kilometer network, so 
serving 41 stations, so Emily advised on modernizations of existing stations, conducted risk assessments, trained staff, and worked with architects to create plans for an accessible rapid transit line to the Rio de Janeiro Olympic Park. So Emily is currently working with CCD, who are a user-centered design agency, and most recently with Heathrow Airport to update their access and inclusion standards, including requirements for disabled staff members for the first time. Emily has also worked with Council of Europe, international travel networks, and sits on equality boards advising Premier League football clubs on their access and inclusion agendas. In addition, Emily has also authorized the Lonely Planet Guide to Accessible Rio de Janeiro and is currently studying for a PhD in Women's Studies at the University of York. So welcome to the podcast, Emily. Thank you so much and thank you for such a lovely introduction. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to, to have you here. I think, I think your experiences, you know, particularly Rio de Janeiro, it just must be absolutely fascinating. What an amazing place to have lived in. It was, it really was. I mean, just the the vibrancy and the life of the cities is something that I will never, ever forget. Yes, absolutely. Two cities to have lived in in the run-up to Olympic Games. That must be quite something. <laughs> absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, turning back to Glasgow, um, generally, do you think Glasgow is an accessible city for people with visible and invisible disabilities? And, you know, considering its main attractions, such as museums, music venues, pubs, restaurants, and Glasgow's public realm as well, what do you think about us? So I've got a bit of a story regarding this. I The first time I actually ever came to Glasgow, I spent two weeks here um, before the 2014 Commonwealth Games. So I was uh, I was basically asked to to write a bit of an accessible travel guide to Glasgow. Went for the first time and spent two weeks in the city, staying in a different hotel every night, eating at different establishments, going to different venues, and I really did feel that within that two weeks I'd got to know Glasgow quite well, and that's what really helped make my decision a couple of years later to move to the city, and. When it comes to access and inclusion, I really like to separate it into two different areas, if you like. So I think it's really important to, of course, look at physical access within the built environment. But I think it's also vital to look at something that I call social access. So the mentality and the perception that surrounds disability and how that user experience feels. That's just as important as ramps and automatic doors and lowered counters and physical access in that sense. So I think Glasgow really, really stands out in terms of social access. The people are friendly, they're open, um, they're very open to education a lot of the time, learning new things. And I think that was one thing that really, I guess, encouraged me to move to the city and celebrate it for what it is mm -hmm, now. Mm -hmm. And if you look at physical access... I think in general, a lot of the museums and culture and heritage institutions are doing a really good job in terms of accessibility. Mm -hmm. I think there's more to be done in terms of nightlife, music venues. A lot of the clubs and pubs, especially independent ones, are like underground, downstairs, things like that. So I have to say that even after living in Glasgow for five years, I've, I've not experienced much of the Glaswegian nightlife. But I have experienced a lot of the arts and culture that the city has to offer. So, I mean, what about things like the underground network? Obviously, I'm very conscious of that. And also um, the, the railway network, too. I was um, 
quite a while ago involved in trying to save Maxwell Park Station on the south side, which is a beautiful little B-listed kind of wooden two-story station, which is a big flight of steps to get you down to the Cathcart Circle, which was put in a cutting all the way through the south side. So there, there are serious level issues there. And we, we just couldn't convince Network Rail at the time to... Um, invest in a lift in the station it was how again within the limited confines of that station did you get a lift in and i think the cathcart circle i think it has two lifts on it so you know you're thinking that's it's really not fair on people that you know you can say something's accessible actually there's only two of the however many stations you can actually use and yeah. so you just have you have to get a taxi from them so the things like that that are difficult and again with the underground i mean you can appreciate because 1896 nobody was thinking like that so you can appreciate that those there are those issues then but then when you when you have an opportunity to modernize it's the the thing is you're not just serving a minority audience you're actually improving accessibility for everybody so true so and that's that's the key thing to get out of it yeah i think that's a really good point we quite often say that there's no such thing as as disabled and non-disabled people there's disabled people and not yet disabled people and i think when we start thinking with that mentality you do realize that you are modernizing something that will serve everybody as you say so that's a really mm. good point. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, it's a shame because the subway in Glasgow is so iconic, right? Absolutely. Um, but I, I've never used it. <laughs> I've never been down. I've never seen it. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think you make a really good point there of how can we make something that is so celebrated and so iconic in so many ways be accessible for more people so that mm-hmm. they can celebrate mm-hmm. it too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, def- definitely very much. I've got another good example as well on this. Not to dwell too much on it, but um, in wearing one of my other hats, I'm the chair of Govan Hill Baths Building Preservation Trust. And so we had, we had an accessibility issue that was quite interesting. I mean, the way the building currently works is, a, and this was how it's originally designed, you had two main entrances. And so, and they had flights of stairs up to them. So what we wanted to do, and obviously there's been this massive community campaign, which has been going on for like two decades to go to get the building back in use. Um, the, the, the board very strongly, and this was the community trust board, um, very strongly who having done this campaign for so long felt that that building should be accessible to absolutely everybody. And there is a disabled ramp up the side of one of the, uh, the you know, the doors at the moment, but it's not brilliantly designed it's not properly accessible as we would have it now so we decided to to remove that and open up the central window between these two entrances and get our disabled entrance in there so it was accessible to everybody in govan hill that was the point of the gesture but what we later realized um, when we'd been planning this was you came into this kind of central area and there was a flight of stairs on the one side of you and then a wee lift on the other so that disabled people could get up to the level of the pool via that we lift. And it was only after we we had a meanwhile use in the building and we were using the pool for um, helping mothers and babies and young school children learn how to swim. And we realized that there was going to be a major issue with women coming in in prams and that they were all going to have to queue to use that lift rather than use the stairs. And it was going to be a total nightmare. And you have people queuing out the door and this just was not going to work. And so we ended up completely redesigning. This was fairly at the last minute, the foyer space to accommodate a proper ramp 
so that we could get people up to the level of the pool without having to sit and queue. And and that may, you know, it makes the situation better for everybody. And it's just about thinking those things through from first principles. Yeah. And you've changed that physical access by looking at the user experience and thinking not just whether it complies to standards or not, which is sadly what a lot of people focus on, but you're also looking at, right, okay, how in reality is this going to be used and is that going to be successful in itself? And I think that's the really important point that's often at the crux of access and inclusion Mm -hmm, being mm -hmm. successful very much. That very much brings me on to my second question, which is that, you know, Glasgow has this kind of, you know, fantastic legacy of historic buildings. And although they look amazing, you know, they aren't always accessible or are only partially accessible to people with disabilities. And so how, how do you think that issue has an impact on the sense of belonging and ownership felt by disa- the disabled community towards heritage and the historic built environment in Glasgow? Um, and, you know, what, what does that tell them about the city that they live in? Mm. Well, of course, to, to say at the very beginning, I'm only one person, so I can only really talk about my experience as, sure. as a disabled person living in Glasgow. Um, but I think it's, it's probably quite natural for a lot of disabled people to gravitate towards newness and mm-hmm. modern um, buildings, venues in terms of, new houses, shopping centres, those Mm -hmm, kind of mm -hmm. things. Because when you wake up in the morning, you don't want to be constantly thinking through every single step, right, okay, how am I going to make this work for myself? And quite often, you know, whether we like it or not, the kind of your shopping centres, your cinemas, those kind of things do provide that access where you don't constantly have to be second-guessing yourself every single time. But I think... What's really, really important when it comes to Glasgow and historic buildings is, first of all, that social access that I mentioned and that that friendliness and approachability Mm -hmm. of the people. But secondly, I think it's a lot to do with how historic venues and buildings advertise what they can offer and advertise that in an honest way. So what I mean by that is if you, as a museum, a venue don't have a hearing or induction loop, for example. Let people know that you don't and then they have the autonomy and the independence to make their own decision as to whether they will visit or not. I think one of the problems that we have so often when it comes to access and inclusion, in cities in particular, because different venues are so often in uh, competition with each other about how many visitors they get in and things like that, is that more often than not, people aren't honest about what they can offer and what they can't. So you've got a lot of disabled people that are turning up at the door and maybe not having as much of a positive experience because they just didn't have the information that they required um, to make that decision pre-arrival as to whether or not it would suit them. So I think, yeah, when we're looking at competing venues in cities, not just Glasgow, but but everywhere in the UK and internationally, it's just about being honest about where you're at in terms of access and inclusion, what your aims and goals are for the next kind of short and long term, and also just allowing then disabled people to make their own decisions because those of us with lived experience are, are going to be experts in that lived experience. And that's okay. That's how it should be. Mm-hmm. That, that reminds me of a recent PR disaster. 
um, which was with uh, em Emirates um, Arena or Stadium in the East End. And that was being used as the counting centre for the Scottish parliamentary elections. And there was uh, disabled uh, MSP, um, Pam, and her surname escapes me at the moment. Um, but there was an issue with her where she couldn't get access to the count um, because of that. And it was, you know, it was really... It was a shocking experience. And of course, she was tweeting about it. And it was just, you know, that and that kind of disconnection. You're absolutely right that, you know, if you, if you knew in advance, you could make those choices. But that choice was denied from her. And it just sends this totally wrong message at absolutely the wrong time. I'm sure everyone was mortified about it. And she actually handled the whole thing with really good grace. Um, but it was, you know, that's it's we need to avoid situations like that because it is exclusionary. Yeah, it is. And you're absolutely right in what you're saying, that that decision is then taken away from disabled people. And that's what we want to avoid. We want to be bringing as much empowerment and decision making process into the hands of people with lived experience as mm, we possibly mm -hmm. can. And that counts within physical access, social access, whether you're looking at historic buildings, new builds, whatever it may be. That's mm -hmm. really important to remember, but wow, that that is quite a shocking story, and yeah, yes, good on her quite. for handling it with yeah, such absolutely, good grace. absolutely. Okay, so talking about heritage and representation, do you think that there is still a lot to be done in this field to allow disabled the disabled community to enjoy art and heritage in safety and comfort? I think representation is such an interesting one, um, and I think. When I look at particular venues, very, very rarely do I see images of disabled people on the website, on social media. There's often an access statement that tells me how high a counter is or how wide a door is. But very rarely do I witness disabled people enjoying the space or being invited to speak at a certain event, whatever it may be. And I think there's a long way to go here in terms of making sure that disabled people feel welcomed into a particular venue because they can see that other people like them have enjoyed it. Um, and that would definitely make a difference for me as a wheelchair user if I knew that, okay, the this particular venue has had disabled people to, to speak at an event or they've held an accessible wedding or whatever it mm -hmm. might be. I think it's really important when that happens to advertise it and to really show how important and valuable that representation can be because I, I'm nearly 30 years old and I've grown up really without having any kind of disabled role model because... I've grown up in a time where disabled people weren't really on TV. They weren't really in magazines. The Paralympics only really started to get properly famous when I was young and you started having Paralympians that, okay, started to, to go on TV and things yes, like that. Yeah. Um, so it's lovely to... London, London really made a difference there. It really did. It really did, yeah. It did make a difference. And it's lovely to see that now that's happening, you know, there are characters in TV shows that just so happen to be disabled. It's yeah. not even part of their character role. And that's yes. fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly how it, how it should, should be. be. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It really is. But I think when we're looking at venue websites and their social media and how they present themselves to potential visitors, we could really up the ante in terms of 
disability representation there. Okay. Um, according to recent research, only 30% of people with disabilities in Scotland have a visible disability. So how do you think people with invisible disabilities, like neurodivergent people, that's people with cognitive learning and neurological impairments, how do you think they experience the city? This is a really interesting question. And I've got to put my accessibility consultant hat on a little bit here because I'm not neurodivergent personally. Um, but I think you made a really good point, Neil, in the in the introduction when you said that actually only 8% of disabled people are wheelchair users. Yes. So you've got another 92% of people that, yes, might have some kind of physical impairment, but they might have a hidden impairment. They might be neurodivergent. They might have a sensory issue or a cognitive issue. And I think quite a lot of the time when we think about access and inclusion, we are still thinking about physical access for wheelchair users and honestly not really going much further than that. And I think mm. part of my job is to now make the clients that I work with aware that there are different groups of people with different impairments and absolutely different needs. And there's also a very real accessibility hierarchy, if you like that exists. Mm -hmm. So a really good example of that accessibility hierarchy and how those uh, needs clash is, for example, um, somebody with a visual impairment will absolutely require tactile flooring to get about safely to cross the road. Yes. For a wheelchair user like me, that tactile flooring is a bit of a nightmare. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, not easy for me to traverse, but absolutely as it should be, their need for safety, comfort, and actually the preservation of life in some instances is much more important than my discomfort for five seconds. Mm -hmm. So I think we've also got to be aware of this accessibility hierarchy that exists. And when we focus only on people with physical impairments, often we make life much harder for neurodivergent people in particular. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what can venues do about this? Well, have you made sure that your staff are trained to be proactive in offering assistance, not just to somebody that looks visibly disabled, but to anybody that looks like they might be struggling or might just mm -hmm. need a bit of an extra hand? Can you offer out sunflower lanyards so people can demonstrate that they might need a bit of assistance if that's something that they want to do? They shouldn't have to, but if they want to, they can. What about if you are a museum or a gallery offering something like sensory kits where you've got ear defenders, where you've got fidget spinners, where you've got um, perhaps a bit of advertisement for a quiet area or a sensory room within your establishment. These things are all things that you can do where you don't have to shout about it. You can do it in a nice, dignified way that allows these people that might need a bit of extra help or might need a certain area to go to that mm. ability to do so. And I mm -hmm. think mm -hmm. that's really the crux of it. Yes, it's really important that we look at physical access in the built environment, but it's also important that we look at what are people feeling when they experience our venues? Mm. And how does that translate if you are neurodivergent, if you've got mm -hmm. a, a sensory impairment or a cognitive impairment? Yes. What can we do to make your life a bit easier and make your experience more enjoyable? Yeah, abs absolutely. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm conscious because I'm an architect and conscious of that as part of my training. And I remember kind of being disappointed 
in kind of this was in the in the 1990s when we first started really probably having to think about these things there was um a building that i love is edwin lutyens the great edwardian architect his midland bank building in london has this fantastic really grand flight of marble stairs in it but he does every stair as kind of black and white cool. so if you're visually impaired ah i mean it looked magnificent but if you're visually impaired what a nightmare and it was like, oh, you can't do that anymore. And it was like, mm, that's a bit disappointing. But then you have to think about people's experiences. And for some people, that would be really, really jarring and uncomfortable. And they would find it really stressful and difficult using that stair. And it's funny because it came back to me um, two years ago. I was visiting a venue in North Lanarkshire, um, which is a big sports complex on the former Ravenscrake site. And it has this really unusual design where it's kind of got these it's big steel sheds, but they're all angled. And it was really weird because you were on the level approaching the entrance. But because all the elevations are kind of angled away from you, the, your brain is telling you that you're actually going downhill, but you're on the level. And it was so disorienting. I actually was feeling nauseous coming up to this entrance. And I'm thinking... For people that really would have, you know, neurodivergent issues and everything, that must be incredibly jarring for them. And when that's the main entrance of your building, how many people actually get put off by that and find that a really discomforting experience? And it's it's not pleasant when you're made to feel uncomfortable like that. So you do have to be really acutely conscious totally. of those kind of issues. Totally. And I think you've hit a really important point there of almost function versus form. Yeah, and I think yeah, very this much. is something that is so often got wrong when it comes to access and inclusion. So you talk about the black and white marble floor, which sounds absolutely amazing, mm. but you know whether you're visually impaired or whether you've got dementia, for example, yeah. any yeah, kind yeah. of pattern on the floor can be really jarring and, and actually really upsetting for a lot of people. Yeah. So how do we make sure that whatever whatever accessible environments that we're creating don't look like hospital rooms, yes. don't look medical, yeah, yeah, yeah. don't look clinical, yeah. but yes. also, like you say, have those considerations in place so that any form that is created in terms of aesthetic is also inclusive. And yeah. I think you're absolutely right. That's where we need to now create that next building block to mm. make people aware of that. Okay. Right, next up, I'm going to read out a statement before I go on to the question. And this is about the purple pound, which I referred to earlier. So the purple pound refers to the spending power of disabled households. A disabled household is a household in which at least one of the members has a disability. And in Scotland has a total market value of 1.33 billion. 98 people, 98% of people check accessibility in advance before going to a new place. Okay. And 81% of those do so from a website. 75% of people feel anxious before visiting a new place. And 98% are more likely to visit a venue if there is accessibility information in the place. And this is all this data available from the Visit Scotland survey back in 2021 that I mentioned earlier. So do you think that this data matches with the effort that businesses put into being fully accessible? And if not, why do you think that's the case? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, I think the heart of this matter and, and of the Purple Pound and the whole purpose of the Purple Pound, if you like, 
is to prove that access and inclusion is no longer a kind and an ethical thing to do. It's Mm -hmm. a savvy, good, Mm -hmm. profitable business model Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. disabled people aren't just people that you should kindly cater for because you think you're doing the right thing and being lovely. They're people that you should cater for because we're good, loyal customers who actually, when we have a positive, accessible experience, will come to your venue again and again and again. And we will tell our deaf and disabled friends about it. We'll tell our friends and family about it. And we will help build profit, build publicity, whatever it may be, about your particular venue. And I think when it comes to businesses and what they're doing now, I do think that that cultural change is starting to happen and businesses are realising that actually we can't just do this because we think it's the right thing. We need to do this because it will help us financially as a business as well. And I want to be seen as a disabled customer that can bring positive elements to a business and help it to run. I don't just want to be seen as this burdenous person that, okay, we've got to do this because we we have to look after disabled people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's done in a resentful way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I work hard. I've got money to spend. A lot of my disabled friends feel the same way. Um, so I, I do think that's an important step. And I do think that Purple Pound has hugely, hugely helped with that culture change. Mm-hmm. Um, what do I think the next steps could be with that? And where are we, where are we perhaps going wrong? I think that there's still very much a focus on this external forward facing disabled visitor or disabled passenger experience and I think it's still taking a lot of time for businesses and organizations to think about disabled staff members so thinking about inclusive recruitment thinking about what the experience of their staff members would be um, if they were disabled and I think there's still a long way to go to almost merge that disabled person, the idea of the disabled person as a loyal consumer, mm-hmm. to seeing that disabled person as a really hardworking, capable employee or colleague. And I think when we get there, we'll have done a good job. Yes, yeah. You're seeing, seeing someone as a proper rounded individual. Mm. Yes. yes. Yeah, and very it's much. just t- it's taken a, a bit of a while to almost put those jigsaw pieces together in terms of this disabled person being seen as that full rounded figure. Um, but we are, we're getting there slowly but surely. <laughs> good, good, good. Right. My next question is more is kind of mental well-being issues, which is something that really interests me in a kind of historic built environment. And it's one of my motivators for being involved in it. And it's very much like uh, Sir, Sir Harry Burns. Uh, when he talks about the kind of the damage that was done to Glasgow in um, the 1960s, 70s and early 80s in terms of the, the demolition of whole swathes of, of the city and the dislocation that people felt about that when the entire surroundings were suddenly removed. So talking about that and kind of, you know, the historic environment and how it surrounds you it does have a major impact on people. And so I'm, I'm interested in how much of an impact you, you think being able to be in a kind of beautiful, historic environment can have on the mental health and well-being of people with disabilities. I think it's absolutely huge. I mean, the short answer, I think it can have an absolutely huge positive impact. And I think what's really special and spectacular about Glasgow as a city 
is the wealth of education, information that you are able to almost glean from these different organizations, institutions, venues, regardless of what your interests are. So I think taking away from disabled people for a second, we're not just disabled people. We're also people that have interests and have preferences and want to do things just like anybody else. And I think looking at those different organizations and venues and thinking about whatever preference you might have whatever you might be interested in within Glasgow you can you can find it you can find some information about it you can really almost hone your interests and build on them and develop them and I think regardless of whether you're disabled or not being able to do that and further that education and that interest is Mm -hmm. absolutely vital and I think that's something that within the last year with the pandemic, I've definitely realized that I've missed and I didn't mm-hmm. quite realize how much I engaged with that side of myself yes. as a disabled person. Yes. And I've really, really missed it. And I'm I'm absolutely desperate to go back to museums and galleries mm-hmm. more than I mm-hmm. am to go and have a drink. I'll be totally <laughs> honest, I am. Because you, I don't think in a city like Glasgow, I don't think you realize how much is on offer until it's taken away from you? Oh, abs- absolutely, absolutely. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's it's it has been an eye opening experience, and to see you know wander through deserted streets in the city mm-hmm. centre in earlier parts of the the lockdown was was really shocking because it's like where is everybody? You know, actually, you you, you begin to realise how much you do connect with everybody, and Glasgow is such a warm, friendly city from that point of view. That yeah suddenly that not being there and everyone being kind of isolated and atomized in their own homes. Yeah, you really do miss that kind of social feel, which everybody should be able to to, to participate in. Absolutely. And I think looking back at the disabled experience, if you are perhaps unable to, I don't know, if taking a walk through Glasgow Green is too much and too Mm. difficult and Mm. there's not enough places to maybe sit down and rest and recuperate, Um, and you just wouldn't normally do that by yourself. Maybe you feel slightly vulnerable doing that on Mm -hmm, your own. mm -hmm. I think that's where culture and heritage venues really do come in because I would feel more comfortable going to the Goma or going to the Kelvin Grove than I would going on a hike by myself. Mm -hmm. And I think it allows this engagement with a beautiful environment that's slightly different to perhaps what other people experience but is just as valuable and I think if we can almost tap into that a little bit more and make people realize how valuable that is for disabled people or or elderly people or parents with children who want to keep an eye on them or people who feel maybe slightly vulnerable going into open spaces on their own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think those are the kind of things that we really need to start looking into and, and seeing what a positive impact that can have. Right. So what would your advice be to venues and places to make their space more accessible to everybody? I mean, that's apart from, you know, making disabled users active participants in mm. the planning and design of spaces. What, what would your advice be? Yeah, so you hit on a really important point there of, engaging people with lived experience as much as possible you know whether whether that is in helping design and plan or whether that's being a member of a user group or a focus group and giving ideas of of their own lived experience to help that design Mm -hmm. and planning Mm -hmm. 
I think another really big thing is wherever possible, don't just depend on the compliance of accessibility standards. Go above and beyond them wherever you can. So I have a lot of clients that say, right, okay, are we we compliant with approved document part M? Are we compliant with BSA 300? All right, that's us done then. See you later. See you in a few years. And they don't really think about how they can go above and beyond. And again, I know I keep coming back to it, but how that experience will actually feel for people. Yes, yes. your ramp yeah, might yeah. be of the correct yeah. gradient, but what, but what will that experience feel like for people? So I think going above and beyond and engaging with those people with lived experience wherever is absolutely vital. I think the next thing is making sure that you never, ever consider access and inclusion to just be a tick box exercise, so something mm-hmm. that you have to do. Again, yeah. that's going back to the purple pound, isn't it? And, and seeing it as, as something that's aspirational, as something that will actually bring you value as a business yeah. or a venue yes. as well. And I also think wherever possible, try and build empathy and understanding along mm-hmm. the way. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a lot of the time people read, I don't know, technical standards and they look for compliance. And it really is just sentences that people know that they've got to comply with but they don't really mm-hmm. under, they don't take the time to build empathy and understanding around why that is so important for somebody's mm-hmm. experience, why yes. this will make such a difference to somebody's experience. So I think the biggest bit of advice that I, I could give to, to venues who were wanting to make themselves more accessible is take that time to build that empathy, whether that's getting somebody in who's you know a disabled person with lived experience to talk about it, whether it's making sure that your staff are trained in disability awareness and communication, whatever it may be, make sure that that empathy mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. is really kind of at the heart of whatever you do um, because those standards are brilliant and making sure that you've kind of complied with everything that you need to do is brilliant, but that doesn't automatically equal inclusion. Absolutely. It's it's about thinking yourself into um, another person's kind of experience. And ab- absolutely, it's so, so critical. I remember, again, this is going back to the 90s and when the Buchanan Galleries opened. And I was speaking uh, back then to a disability consultant about that who was trying to teach young architects about how to visualize the city and to to think about what other people's experience of going around the city was actually like and the the kind of small difficulties you would get in various places. But the totality of that experience gradually adds up. And the one thing he was pointing out in Buchanan Galleries was fantastic. Somebody's put in a huge ramp here for everybody, but has anyone actually ever tried to Mm. wheel themselves up it? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because it's a total nightmare and you have to be like, you know, have to have have this incredible physical fitness and stamina to be able to do it because it's like the world's longest ramp. So, and it's thinking through things like that is, is, is absolutely key. And that as a designer, you should be able to do that. You should be able to project yourself into kind of other people's experiences and be able to understand that. It should be a, a key facet of your skill set. Yes, agreed. Agreed, absolutely. So what, in your opinion, makes a building or venue truly accessible? Oh, good question. I think ultimately for me, I could go into the most physically accessible venue in the whole entire world. It could have brilliant accessible parking provisions, step-free access, lowered curbs. It could have um, even a help point or information point outside. 
um, lowered counters, everything that I would need in terms of the, my physical environment. But if I am not treated well as a disabled person once I'm in that venue, mm -hmm. and if that mentality and perception of disability is not positive, then that physical access often means very little to me. So I would say the, th the thing for me that's really at the heart of everything is making sure that, again, like I said, that empathy is there, that understanding of the user experience is there, and staff ultimately feel confident and comfortable in being proactive in assisting me, but also have that ability to empathise with my experience, um, work with disabled colleagues, and also be aspirational wherever possible in how they continue to educate themselves around access and inclusion and the disabled customers and colleagues that they come across in everyday life. Mm -hmm. I think to me, that's kind of everything. Um, I would like to think that even if something wasn't physically accessible, I could always ask somebody and they would help me. Um, yes. And I feel like we're very lucky in Glasgow that I, I always feel like I, I can ask somebody and I can get a friendly answer and somebody will probably, you know, uh, tell me their life story at the same time. <laughs> Absolutely. Again. First, first, first time I ever came to Glasgow when I was eight um, and I was with my dad and we went into what was then Lewis's department store and is now mm. became Debenhams. And um, uh, I was I was brought up in Hong Kong and, and people can be kind of wee bit standoffish in Hong Kong. They're not too bad. But I remember stepping into a lift in Lewis's with my dad and this guy turning to my dad and giving it, rah, 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 you know, had the weather and his entire life story in like five seconds. I was thinking, <laughs> where have I come to? And yet it's absolutely what I value about close yeah. regions because they are incredibly friendly and Me will too. get your life story out of you just like that. I, I really appreciate that openness. And that is, that is so key in a situation like this. So finally... What is your favourite building in Glasgow and why? And what would it tell you if it's Walls Could Talk? Oh, it's tough. And I've been thinking about this for a little while, I'll be honest. And I think I'm going to have to go with what's probably a huge cliche because, and I say this because every time I turn off Argyle Street and see the Kelvin Grove, it literally and physically takes my breath away every single time especially if I see it on a beautiful sunny day. Mm -hmm, I see mm -hmm. people enjoying the grounds outside and having their picnics. I just absolutely adore it. So that's probably a bit of a cliche, but it's no, true. No, good choice, good I choice. I, I love the Kelvin Grove. It's, it's fabulous. <laughs> it is, it's brilliant. It's great sculpture on it. It's it's such a warm, friendly space. And I love that, you know, you go into the kind of the central heart of it and it's when the organ's playing and oh, yes. everybody stands around. And when that when David Bowie died and they did Space Oddity on the organ, wow, oh. <laughs> it's just amazing. It's lovely. It's incredible. Such a great space. Yeah. So, so and good. it does feel like everybody's welcome in it. Yes, it really does. I think you're absolutely absolutely right. Um, and I recently went went to the Linda McCartney exhibition mm -hmm, there as mm -hmm. well, and I absolutely loved that. So I'm always looking out for the for the new little exhibitions that are going on at the Kelvin Grove as well. But yeah, I really adore it, and I think it's it's pretty good for access as well. And if its walls could talk, what would it say? I mean, I think it's held so many events, so many 
weddings. I've I've been there to speak about uh, disability and relationships, for example. Mm-hmm, they hold mm-hmm. so many brilliant events for different charities and, and NGOs. And they've held so many different exhibitions from so many different fabulous people that I think it will be able to probably gossip about every single person that has visited it. I think it would have so many stories to tell. You know, we we talk about how Glaswegians are very quick to tell us their life stories. The Kelvin Grove's heard them all. It's heard them all. So I would be very interested to see what what uh, different tidbits of information the Kelvin Grove will be able to give me in terms of <laughs> <Good> gossip. Spill. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Emily. That was a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you. You and too. To our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. And don't forget to follow the hashtag if Glasgow's walls could talk. Thank you very much. The following message was submitted by a member of the public. If you want to leave a message about your opinions, memories and thoughts about Glasgow's historic built environment, have a look at our website to find out how. I think the main step is to ensure that people with disabilities are part of the planning process. It would be great to see dementia-friendly design principles being used, signage, colour contrasts, use of easily recognised images, etc. Glasgow City Heritage Trust is an independent charity and grant funder that promotes the understanding, appreciation and conservation of Glasgow's historic built environment. Want to know more? Have a look at our website at glasgowheritage.org.uk and follow us on social media at Glasgow Heritage. This podcast was produced by Inner Ear for Glasgow City Heritage Trust. This podcast is kindly sponsored by the National Trust for Scotland and supported by Tunnex.